Luke 23 and verse 42, we begin with his humble petition. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Amen. May God bless his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord God of heaven, truly precious promises are given to us in the Holy Scripture. And as your minister preaches this, one of the greatest promises of all in the word of God, given to us by Christ even as he suffered on the cross, we pray that you would bless the preached word, that all of us would see a Savior whose heart is inclined to receive into paradise all those who would cast themselves upon him. Give the congregation faith to believe as the Holy Spirit works in the preaching of the word of God. And we pray this one thing, Lord, as we come to the preached word, that thou wouldst help us behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, in our communion sermons, we have begun a series on the seven sayings of the Lord on the cross. The seven words of the Savior on the cross. As you know, our Savior had seven sayings from his crucifixion to his death. And I'll remind you of what they are. His very first found here in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we considered this last time. Second, which we consider today. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise verse 43 his third saying woman behold thy son and to john his disciple behold thy mother john 19 25 through 26 fourth and we sung it and it is found in matthew 27 46 it's the central saying and perhaps the one that we are keenly interested in and we'll get to it one day my god my god why hast thou forsaken me his fifth saying, I thirst, John nineteen twenty eight. His sixth saying, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. And his final saying here in verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. These seven sayings express the heart of the person of Christ and his work to save us. Each saying is a rich and sweet meditation that draws our affections to Christ and his sufferings. They encapsulate the totality of what he has done, his heart, his agony, his complete salvation, received by grace alone, through faith alone. We find his love on the cross. We find his misery on the cross. We find his triumph and we find his majesty on the cross as well in these seven sayings a full scope of what we need for our salvation. And when we take these all in, all together, which we will one day, we can only say with the Apostle, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we glory in a piece of wood, but we glory upon the work of the Son of God upon His cross, who willingly placed Himself upon it to save sinners from God's almighty wrath for their sin. We saw that last time in the first word, 
in the last communion service in this word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in this communion sermon, we consider the second saying of our Savior, which we call the word of salvation. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And in that short, blessed saying on the cross, the gospel of grace is vividly portrayed. What takes Paul in some ways, and he must do it, chapters to elucidate in the book of Romans, you find in a few short words here from the Savior's own mouth and lips. The gospel given to the chief of sinners, a malevolent man who simply asks to be remembered by Christ out of faith in him, and he receives the sure promise of salvation today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? A lifetime of sin erased in a moment and an assurance of salvation. And in this word, we also find something glorious that not only did the Savior come to save us from the wrath of God, but he did something far greater to reconcile us to God in him, to have an eternity of blessedness with the most blessed being of all, God himself, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There is so much here in this blessed word. And so it is the second word of salvation we will consider before we make our approach to the table. And we'll do that under two meditations. First is the malevolent malefactor, and second is the precious promise. Our first meditation then, the malevolent malefactor, so that we can understand what kind of people Christ saves. If we have, in any sense, seen our sinfulness as a bar to Christ, you must understand that the chief of sinners can approach him if they come in faith. And when you see our Lord crucified, he was crucified shockingly, stunningly, staggeringly, between two grotesque evil men. Let's consider them that we might understand who Christ suffered for, and why he was crucified between the chiefest of sinners. Luke calls these men malefactors. That is, they were vile and evil men. And these were men who were justly crucified, unlike our Lord. We often call them thieves, due to our translation, calling them that in the other synoptics in Matthew and Mark. But the wrong sense here would be, boys and girls, to think of them as maybe shoplifters petty criminals. No, the word translated thief in the other synoptics actually coheres with malefactor here. It has the sense of robber or plunderer. And the emphasis is really on violence rather than even their thievery. It's likely that these men were in the habit of waylaying their victims and had even murdered in order to rob Perhaps even the reason they find themselves on the cross most of all is that these were probably acts connected uh, in connection to insurrections against Rome herself. The very thing that Jesus was accused of, but we have heard even Pilate um, clear him of in this text. And though Jesus were innocent, we must not make the mistake of thinking that these men were. They were justly condemned by Pilate, unlike Christ. In verse 41 an admission from one of the, the men. We receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man, pointing to Christ, hath done nothing amiss. He speaks truth. 
They were violent criminals and robbers, but Christ was holy and harmless and blameless. Boys and girls, then, from just this bare fact, what table of God's law were they guilty of? Breaking the second table, right? Which is summed up by love thy neighbor as thyself. But at least one of the men committed sins far worse. Now, both of them did, but it's on display here in verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now you think about how vile this man's heart was. To see the Savior hanging on the cross, bloody and bruised and torn and tormented, to revile him, who had done nothing but bless men. He had just said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Seeing the Lamb of God slain for his people, being laid open before God as a living sacrifice to bring his people to God. He mocked what Jesus had come to do. How cruel is the heart of man? You know, not in the same gravity, but even on Friday night, we plead with men, there is a Savior here to save you from all your sins, who was torn apart for sinners. What's in the heart of so many? Mockery. Cruelty to the glorious gospel. But here is God in the flesh hanging on a cross, blasphemed and reviled. This man not just guilty of sins against the second table of the law, but also the first table, blaspheming God in the flesh. And he was also used on this occasion as a means from Satan to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ. Save thyself. He said to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus Christ had the power, of course, to save himself. This is a temptation from the evil one, knowing that if Jesus did save himself, none of us would be saved. So does Jesus save himself? No, he constrains himself to that cross, though he could call for a legion of angels to wipe out all of Rome. And free him from that place and smite this man that dared to blaspheme his name. And you think of this man who forsakes his own mercy, doesn't he? As we've heard in the free offer of the gospel, he mocks the very mechanism by which men are saved. And Christ blessedly endures it all. This man disparages the Son of God, whom God himself had said before all the people, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's a sin far worse than his crimes of pillaging, plundering, and murdering. A grotesque breach of the first and third commandments at the very least. Mocking God. This is what is happening. Let's not miss it. He mocks God who hangs on a cross, scorning him, reviling him, hating him. And so the men besides Christ are really scoundrels of the worst kind, open and brazen, breakers of the commandments of God, easy to see that these two men deserve hell and damnation by the very law of God. And while all men are sinners, yes, there's a great demonstration besides Christ of the chief of sinners, of the worst of sinners. And here is where we have our breath taken away and we cover our mouth in astonishment. Who is placed between the two of them? God in the flesh. 
hoisted up between them as though to say, here is the absolute worst of them all. Jesus Christ, chief of sinners, worse than this blasphemer, worse than this murderer. Here is the Son of God, put between them, though he broke none of God's laws. He was convicted as a blasphemer by the Sanhedrin, first table conviction. As a rebel by the Romans, second table conviction. And so he was portrayed, though he was of a truth innocent, as the worst man who ever lived, in a sense. Yet he, only in the history of men, kept all of God's laws. He alone has a righteousness that is pure and perfect and spotless and blameless. But he is portrayed as though the chief of sinners. That is a terrible place to put the Savior. But it is God's ordained place for the Savior. Put on the cross, why? As a substitute for the chief of sinners. So that the very worst of us can say, Christ was put on the tree as a curse for me. That he was put in my place as convicted by God of being guilty of all the commandments of God, though of course he was not guilty. He was counted guilty. And he was portrayed among uh, among all men in that way. Such that if you call yourself the chief of sinners and you have called on the name of the Lord, you can see Jesus Christ crucified for you and say, He has suffered for me in my place. If you have cast yourself upon Him in faith, you need to take your sins and take up the elements and by faith see Christ crucified for the very worst. And you who are without faith, as you look on on the Lord in astonishment, you can see that whatever you have done, it is possible for Christ to forgive because He Himself was counted as the absolute worst. This was ordained by God. He hung there to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 53.12, where it says that Christ would be numbered among the transgressors. So this is God's doing. This is not something that he was taken aback by. This is God's design. And the Son of God, who himself is the incarnate Word of God, purposed to have done this from the very beginning, from before there was a beginning, from eternity past. He knew that it was for this cause that he came into the world, came down from heaven to be incarnated. This was what he purposed to do. Why was he numbered among the transgressors? What was the aim? I'll read Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Why was he numbered among the transgressors? To be counted as one. To bear the sins of sinners. Christ becoming the sin bearer, holy, harmless, innocent, blameless, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is what we call the great exchange. His righteousness given to us, our sin given to Him. And He must be counted as the absolute worst sinner so that He can save the absolute worst sinner. What a trade that is. Child of God, when you come 
to the table then. You see in broken bread and shed wine, the Savior in your place. The Savior in your place, broken and crucified, who suffered to bring you to God. All your sin you find uh, there upon him, the reason for him being broken and the reason for him to be poured out an offering to God, a sin offering for you and for me. And that's what you see at the table. All my sin gone away. And though he were, he was the most righteous man the world would ever know, he was pleased to do it. To be your substitute, you know, wretch that you and I am, to be publicly made what? A gazing stock, a spectacle before all men in this way, to be reviled publicly as a grotesque sinner, to be silent there and taught to vindicate himself. He does it willingly for his people. And we must take note of it when we come. The Bible says he despised the shame. He endured it. And that he did all of this out of love for his people. He did it for the joy that was set before him of his glory to come and to reconcile you, child of God, to God. This is a sweet meditation as you come to the table. This is a sweet meditation, not just for the moment of the table, but at any moment, at any point when you need assurance of salvation. And as this work was prophesied, hundreds of years before Christ was crucified, you see that this was God's covenantal commitment from eternity past and that this cup is the New Testament truly in Christ's blood. And when you behold it, you know that God has loved you eternally so and manifested his love in time past and giving you yet another token of it here at the table this morning. By his spirit, one day he gave you faith to believe and drew you to himself. What does the Bible say? Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. When you come to the table, you must see that God has loved you with an everlasting love. And that's why he's drawn you by faith to the table, to Christ himself. You don't make God love you by believing on him. God has loved you forever and will love you forever. And he draws you to himself. And what then keeps you from the table if he has loved you in that way? The son of God demonstrating it by willingly laying down his life for you on the cross. Well, in Isaiah fifty-three twelve, we hear that he was numbered among the transgressors, but it also said that he made intercession for them. And last time we saw, this is the first word of the cross in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But as we've read, even after the Lord Jesus prays that great prayer, the chief priests and scribes continue to deride him, continue to mock him, as did one of the thieves. But one of them had had a change of heart, which is what we observe in verses 40 and 41. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. This is a remarkable word. A truly remarkable word, beloved. Suddenly, 
This man is gripped with the fear of God. Dost not thou fear God? He knew that he himself was justly condemned. We indeed justly. He admits he's a sinner. He sees that he has done evil. And he knows that he was receiving the due reward of his deeds. And he vindicates Christ saying, This man, unlike myself, unlike you, friend, he is innocent and guiltless and blameless. The man, we must see, was born again. He was regenerated. He had faith, and these are the fruit of faith. He admitted to his evil. He had the fear of God. He repented of his sin, and he vindicated Christ's righteousness. These are all markers of a true and saving faith. He doesn't justify himself, does he, friends? He doesn't say, well, you know, I was a bit poor, and I went and I robbed. I can really be excused. No, I am justly condemned. He doesn't say, Rome is so wicked. He sees no one's sins but himself. I am justly condemned. And you, my compatriot in crime, you too. But Christ, he is blameless. These are all markers of a true and saving faith. And these are the kinds of things that you have said to God in Christ when you believed. The man then next says to Jesus in the next verse, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now we see his faith really blossoming in his profession here. He called, first of all, don't miss this, he called Jesus Lord. This is truly God's spirit at work. What do we know in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calleth Jesus accurseth, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. One man is regenerated, He calls Jesus Lord by the Holy Ghost working in him. The other man calls Jesus accursed because he has not the Spirit of God. This man is regenerated. And the Spirit opens his eyes to recognize Jesus is stunningly Jehovah in the flesh. Jesus is uh, the Lord come to save sinners. And he recognized that Jesus is King. When thou comest into thy kingdom... The placard is true. This is the king of the Jews. This God-man is the king of the church. And he recognizes both these truths. This man is a sterling example of the faith that the new birth gives to a man wrought only by the Holy Spirit to believe things. As you think on this man and his eyesight, to believe things that our eyes say are impossible Consider what this man's faith grasped that his eyes would tell him are a lie. He believed that the man hanging next to him, mocked and reviled by all his own breath and his own strength ebbing out of his body, bruised, beaten, is the Lord of glory. He saw the man hanging next to him, the pitiful sight prophesied of in Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man, of men. But his faith doesn't see what his eyes see. His eyes see a dying man beaten beyond human recognition. His faith sees the Lord of glory come to save men by way of a cross. And he prayed to Christ dying that others derided, 
Others saying he cannot save himself. He says to him, remember me. In other words, save me. Human eyes cannot behold the Savior as he is. It takes faith. This man's faith had him believe that Jesus, not only bruised and at the edge of death, was the Lord, but that Jesus would enter into his kingdom after death. That there is a life to come. That Jesus was going to be resurrected. That Jesus wouldn't end his life on the cross or in the grave. And that he believed that Jesus would remember him. This was his hope, a malevolent sinner in that life to come when he enters into his kingdom. And that Jesus could pardon him to the uttermost and make him a citizen of heaven. These are the things that he saw by faith and not by sight. All we can say is that is what this man did. Nailed to a Roman cross, walking by faith and not by sight. What must then our faith at the table behold as we handle the elements of bread broken and wine poured out? Jesus Christ. We see not these elements of bread and wine, but instead we look beyond them by faith to a Savior whose body was broken for us, given for us, to a Savior whose blood was shed for us so that we might be reconciled to God. And so faith takes the elements that we have before us and says, Christ was given for me as I take my portion of the bread. And it says, Christ was given for me as I sip my sip out of the cup. This is what faith beholds. Whereas, whereas what does the world see? It sees simply a bit of wine and a bit of bread. But we see beyond that, don't we? So what can we say of this man? But that this man had all the markers of the new birth. I was thinking on our time Wednesday night in the Song of Solomon 3, verse 6. As we recall the daughters of Jerusalem, and we see the daughters of Jerusalem here, don't we, in verse 28, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves, and so on. So the daughters of Jerusalem are here. And we recall what the daughters of Jerusalem asked when they looked upon the bride redeemed by Christ. Who is this? Who is this? And you almost imagine that the other man hanging on the cross looks at his former partner in crime and says, Who is this? Who is this man now casting himself upon this pathetic-looking so-called Savior and has these words to say to him of faith? As we look upon this redeemed criminal, we see how the most hardened of men can become childlike in faith and hope and love. Such is the change the Lord makes in the heart. But we might ask, how did this man come to receive this faith? And we can only say it must have been the word of God. Right? This is how being born again comes. First Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. This is where being regenerated comes from by the spirit working in the word. But you might ask, what word might he have heard that would convert him on the cross? Well, we have a word on the cross, don't we? Jesus' first word. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you have to believe that by this word, the change had occurred in the man, that the Holy Spirit opened the man's eyes. I don't know what I have been doing. 
He opens his eyes to his sin. He says, I have despised, in a sense, God my whole life. Maybe the man had heard in times past the word of God, as in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors and that the Messiah would make intercession for the transgressors and the eyes of his understanding now being enlightened as this is playing out in real time. Or perhaps the Spirit used the word and especially moved his heart when he saw the Savior, uh, pitiful and torn, being mocked and in the face of it, still pleaded with God to forgive even those that crucified him. And he saw that mercy is available to the worst. He certainly saw the heart of Christ, earnest to save sinners, even as he was on the cross, not coming down himself to save others, uh, so that he could save others and not himself. There is something quite potent and powerful, the Bible teaches us, about an earnest pleading with sinners to come to the Lord. Right? It is why the preaching of the gospel is to be done with earnestness. Why the apostle teaches preachers in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What an effect, the Savior pleading with God for souls, even these criminals who had crucified him must have made on the man's soul. The Holy Ghost using that means to save him, to communicate to him, Christ is earnest to save sinners. Will you see that for yourself before we leave this scene? That Christ is earnest to save even the chief of sinners. Well, we also can't help but note that one thief was given faith while his compatriot died without. These men, same background, same position, really, before the Lord. But one believes and one does not. One thief passed over, the other, the Holy Spirit gives faith. At first, they're indistinguishable. But then you find that another purpose for Christ putting them on either side of him is that Christ divides the two. Christ divides the two. One goes to eternal life by faith and the other to eternal damnation for his own sins. Just as there will be a separation in the congregation shortly, which also speaks of the division here at the cross. One believes is taken to paradise by Christ. One unbelieving and perishes in sin. Now, I will say for the comfort of many that the division here is not going to be a perfect one in that some will abstain for legitimate purposes and yet have a saving interest in Christ and some, and I pray and trust this is not the case, will come though they have no saving faith in the Lord at all. An imperfect division, but representative. Representative of what Christ does with all men. One sinner will be saved and one will be perished. And what is it that divides the two? Jesus Christ himself. It'll be Christ that divides the saved and the lost on the day of judgment as well. The sheep on one side, the goats on another. One going to eternal damnation, one going into eternal blessedness, entering into the joy of the Lord. And you must see that Christ divides all men. You can either be on his one side with the thief who is saved, or you can be on the other in the thief that is damned. But these are the only two positions relative to Christ. And the cross itself shows you that. Passed over for your sin or embraced with eternal life. Well, in our final heading with time slipping, let's consider Christ's response in the heading, The Precious Promise. 
So the thief, renewed, asks a humble petition of the Lord in verse 42. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This is all he asks. This isn't some long, great, drawn-out prayer where he is begging and begging and begging and hoping and hoping the Lord will take him in. He says with faith simply, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. And what a strange sight this is to the world, isn't it? If you were there before this scene unfolding, a dying man asking another dying man to be remembered. This is the foolishness of our faith, friends, on display. And you must embrace it as the thief did. He knew that he was going to be subject to all kinds of mockery for his faith in a dying man. And yet he embraces Christ. And you come to, again, a table to partake of a Savior, bloody and bruised and broken, and the world looks on this as a very strange and foolish thing. But this man was a fool for Christ, because by faith he saw who Jesus truly is, as I trust you have as well. Well, what does Christ's response, and and this is where we really are cheered today if we are in him, aren't we? What was Christ's response? And you think of the universe of possibilities of what may have come out of the Savior's mouth. There's only one possibility if you know the word of God. But if you didn't know the word of God, you might think in a natural standpoint what he might say. He might say to the man, if he was uh, uh, thinking like we often do, you are too far gone. There is nothing you can do to earn salvation now. You are hung there on that cross. You can do no alms. You can go and do no great deeds. You cannot rectify and fix all the things that you have done, all the murder that you have committed against those made in God's image. It is just too late for you. didn't say that. He doesn't say, you repulse me. Don't even speak to me now. He doesn't say that either. No, Christ received him. Even with all of his evil and all of his sin, Christ received him kindly, compassionately. When Christ speaks to him, he doesn't push him away. Instead, these are Christ's words in verse 43. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There are two phrases I would like to begin with. And both deal with Christ's assuring the man in a very gracious way. He addressed the man directly. I say to thee. We begin with that. He did not have to acknowledge the man, did he? Nor did he have to speak to him. He didn't have to say anything kindly. But he did. He addressed him personally. I say unto thee. You called me Lord. Very good. So on my own authority as Jehovah, thus saith the Lord, I say unto thee, I promise what I alone can give, and I will give it what I promise unto thee. If you have cast yourself upon the Lord, his promises are to you personally. I say unto thee, I say unto thee. But then, as he has said it, You know this is a hard promise to take if you are a sinner. He has to emphasize it for the feebleness of our faith. 
he says, Verily, or truly, assuredly, do not doubt what I am about to say to you, because this is a great and precious promise that is far, far too wonderful to ever hope is yours, and I know your flesh will cause you to doubt it. It is yours, though, and I assure you of it personally. I say unto thee, and I verily say unto thee, truly, what is his promise? Today, this very day, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now we've had a sermon on heaven, and we know what the Savior means. This is heaven that is in view. Heaven is yours now. You have a claim. You have a deed to it by faith. You will be in heaven, and when you die in a short few hours, you will enter paradise. And there is absolutely nothing else you must do to gain it. It is yours. I have opened the gates of righteousness to you out of, uh, when out of faith you asked, when you said, as we heard in Psalm 118, Hosanna, save Lord. Will you behold not only how precious this promise is, but also how kindly and compassionately the Savior spoke to the man. All of his evil deeds forgotten in an instant, not even brought to the Savior's remembrance, not even the Savior bringing it to his remembrance. Instead, out of the Savior's mouth is pure grace to the worst of sinners. You need to behold the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the chief of sinners. Believe on him, O chief of sinners, and you will hear the word of God promise you, verily I say unto thee, thou shalt be with me in paradise. What does he promise to all of you who will believe on him? I will be merciful to thy unrighteous, thine unrighteousness and thy sins and thine iniquities will I remember no more. The second word on the cross proves the truth of that doctrine. And so the question is really, why would you ever rail on Christ in unbelief when you can have this blessedness? This man chose the better portion, didn't he? He chose to give his sins over to the Lord. And will you behold Christ's heart to give paradise to the very worst men and women? But there is something far better than paradise that he promises here in this verse, doesn't he? He said that thou shalt be with me in paradise. As we have meditated on recently, paradise is just the setting. Christ is the main attraction. He is the attraction for the child of God. It's not paradise as a place, but paradise as a mere setting by which they may have Christ himself. Remember in John 14, he said to his people, I go to prepare a place for you. And we say how glorious that is, that he has gone to heaven to prepare a place to dwell with himself. That's really the emphasis though, isn't it? Is it the place or is it the dwelling with him? He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's the attraction of heaven. He doesn't say, I will bring you to heaven. No, he says, I will bring you unto myself. That where I am, you may be also. Paradise's promise and the promise of the second word is that this is the place where we will be with Jesus. As you think on communion before you, 
When we think on paradise as a setting, the life to come for the believer, it is a setting, in other words, for communion with Christ. Just as this table is merely a setting for communion with Christ. And that's why we desire to come to the table. We don't come to desire to the table because it is pretty and it is a nice thing to do. We come to the table because the attraction is Christ. Communion with him. And paradise is a setting for, and this is marvelous to us, unbroken and unending communion. For you who believe, Christ is heaven's joy. Christ is heaven's glory. Christ is heaven's brilliance. For all of God's blessings and all of God's love is mediated through Christ, which you see here at the table. All of this is God's love mediated by the Holy Spirit to us. God's love, infinite and unending, pure and holy, come by way of Christ, the mediator, the God-man. He is the one through whom all of God's blessings flow. And that's why we desire him. And at the table you find a foretaste of paradise. Communion with Jesus. Well, this second word shows Christ knew full well where he was headed after his death, that himself, beyond the cross, there was paradise. He knew that three days later he would be resurrected and he uh, would have his body join his soul in paradise in the resurrection. Now, as we think on the Savior, knowing what is coming ahead, Let's then remember what Hebrews 12 says. Why did he endure the cross? Well, it says, Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Because he looked for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. That is, he looked at what lay beyond the cross. Even as you get a snapshot of his thinking beyond the cross, when he talks to the sinner beside him. Paradise. You will be with me in paradise. You know, the Lord found joy beyond the cross in many things. His ascension to God's right hand being the chief of joys, of course. And we find, though, that joy conjoined here in the second word. And maybe you need to take note of this child of God, that by his suffering, part of his joy beyond his suffering was that he would be with his people. And he would commune with them forever. This is part of the Savior's own joy of looking beyond the cross that I will receive all these to myself. Is it not something as we think on the bread and the wine to believe as we come to it that Jesus' own soul was helped by thinking of us coming to him? His own soul was helped on the cross by thinking that this one next to me that I cannot touch that I cannot console yet with my own arms, will be with me in paradise. And that the work I accomplish on the cross will bring this one, this dear one, to heaven. It's a remarkable thing that this was part of the joy that was set before the Savior. That this one would be with me in paradise even this day as I finish the work that God has set before me. This is Christ's heart and how he had prayed in John 17, 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold what? My glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. You know, his joy was not only that we would be with him where he is, 
but also that by reconciling us to God and by earning our salvation, he would be glorified. And that one day we would not just behold him as a suffering servant, but in glory we would see our Christ as he truly is. And that cheers the heart of the Savior, that they will see me glorified, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. You know, one day, believer, you will see your Savior as he is in glory, and you will be absolutely ravished and taken away. You will be ravished at the sight of him, and you will say with breathless awe, the half was not told me of how remarkable he is. For words are incapable of telling me. No wonder Christ prayed and continues to pray even now before we come to him, that I would come and behold him as he is. For mere words can never communicate the fullness of Christ's glory and majesty. And I will say one day, as I behold him in awe, this is my beloved. This is my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And if there are tears after the resurrection, when we are glorified before the presence of the Lamb, What tears will they be but tears of joy, of joy inexpressible in seeing him? This is the one who left heaven to come and die for me. This is the one who loved me until the end. This is my beloved. The half was not told me of his love and his beauty. Well, that said, Christ would die before this man. In John 19, 32 to 33. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. So Christ dies before this man did. And Christ's final two words on the cross before he died were surely triumphant. He said, it is finished. And before he gave up his life, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he dies. But the man lingers in life a while longer. And perhaps you might think then of doubts and unbelief that might creep and arise in him. You think on him looking on the dead man beside him. Was this truly the Messiah? Look at how dead, utterly dead and lifeless he is. Or maybe another kind of sinister doubt comes into his heart. Will he truly remember me? now that he has come into paradise. Will he remember me? Or maybe the man thinks back to Joseph, and he remembers Joseph's request to the chief butler, but think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. Genesis 40.13. Boys and girls, you remember, the chief butler didn't remember Joseph. And so maybe the man thinks, will Jesus remember me? In heaven he has gone away. But Christ never forgets any that are his. His promise is sure in Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. And he said, not a sparrow is forgotten before God and you are of more value than many sparrows. And so we are called to be not faithless, but believing He says, come to the supper in remembrance of me. 
Isn't that what he says? And really the issue is this, not that he has a problem remembering you, but you have a problem remembering him. The problem is not him, it's us. His memory is ironclad, ours not so much. And so this supper helps you remember that there is a Savior who will always remember you, child of God. Well, the man would then die with great pain, his legs crushed, and he suffocates to death, essentially, a gruesome and bloody and terrible death. But his faith held out until the end. And we know that for sure. Why? Do you know why? The Bible doesn't say it explicitly right here, does it? You know why? Because Jesus promised him. And what Jesus promises, he himself will accomplish. And you know that Christ would uphold the man's faith until he died. And he continued his intercessory work even in heaven. As he ascends into heaven, not yet his full ascension, but his soul goes to heaven. He continues to pray for the man, doesn't he? He would pray even as he prayed for Peter. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not as he does for all of you who believe on him. And so as you come to the table, you must remember that too, that it is Christ who upholds your faith, beloved. And if there are any doubts today, you say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, and he will give you help at the table. Well, does your faith believe these things, beloved, that when this man awoke, he woke in the presence of Christ, in the blessed presence of Christ. When Christ said, today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. He truly received that promise. And if you believe this man received it, will you believe that you will receive it when you come before the beloved? In the 17th Psalm, there is a beautiful melody that all believers must remember for the deathbed. I'll cite it as the metrical Psalter has it. But as for me, I thine own face in righteousness will see. And with thy likeness, when I wake, I satisfied shall be. This is the song of the man for all eternity. And so this man will stand until the end of the age of the great and precious doctrine of justification by, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And we know this as the man was nailed to a cross and unable to do any good works. And we'll just end with this thought that he is a vivid portrayal of Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. An ungodly man without strength, unable to help himself or redeem himself. And we see the truth. Christ died for him when he could do nothing. And so this puts away any notion that our good works can save us. It puts away that unbiblical and wicked doctrine of devils of purgatory. Nowhere to be found in the Bible. This day, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not millions of years from now when you are purged and purified. Puts away the doctrine of sacraments necessary for salvation. Man did not need to be baptized to be washed away of his sin. He did not need to take the Lord's Supper to eat the Lord's flesh sacramentally. It is faith. And faith alone in the person of Christ that saves to the uttermost. The chief of sinners all. And that is what the saved man had, faith, and it sent him to heaven after a lifetime of evil in a moment. So if you are without faith, I want to address you specifically this moment, morning. Nothing bars you from the Savior. 
but your own impenitent heart. All you must do is cast yourself upon him. It's the hardness of your heart, your love for sin, that condemns you. The Savior has his arms wide open, even as they were stretched out on the cross, to receive the worst. So come. You cannot ever say to me, or to the Lord, more importantly, my sins are too great to come to him. Look at this man on the cross and see Christ's willingness to save him. No reservations in the Savior at all. And he has no reservations in saving any sinner. He is not a reluctant Savior. And for you who have prepared to commune with him at the Lord's table, you might have seen, as I have great evils in my own heart, your heart too, this past week, as you prepared to commune with him, perhaps even this day, maybe this moment. So you must treasure this second word of the cross and see his gracious heart, that if you repent of your sin and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in him. Soon you will commune with him, child of God, and you will taste and see that the Lord is good. And this communion will be a deposit of paradise in your soul that thou shalt be with Jesus. And may it be marvelous to you not only to hear that word today, but to experience it in this sacrament by faith. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let us arise for prayer now. If able. O Lord God, how precious are all the promises of God in Christ. We thank you for the precious promise of salvation in Jesus. And we pray that if any here have never known the heart of Christ to save even the worst sinner, that today would be the day in which they call on the name of the Lord. And that as we proclaim the death of the Lord till he comes in the sacrament, that we would see that in the death of Christ is the death of death for those who call on him. That those who call on his name will truly never die. And we, by faith, believe that this one man, who he never truly died, when he suffocated to death, his very next moment, he was in the paradise of God as Christ had promised, with his beloved Savior, seeing Christ by uh, faith and hope removed, now seeing him face to face. And we pray that that would be the case now, that we would behold the glory of the Lord as a foretaste of that day in which we will see him face to face, even as we come to the Lord's Supper, that we would see him in these elements of bread and wine by faith and what he has done for us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.